I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Jenny Magera. Jenny is the global head of education impact at Google. She is a best-selling author of Courageous Adventures, and she is the founder and president of the nonprofit organization Our Voice Alliance. Jenny has had many other roles within education, including her time as a Chicago public school teacher. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Great. So Jenny, you are out for a day trip with your husband, your daughter, maybe your dog, depending if you normally take your dog with you. I'm not a dog person, so I'm not sure how those things go. But you're out for a day in Chicago. I've never been to Chicago. What does a wonderful Chicago day look like? Oh, well, it's, it's whether you're talking about the uh, the world before or current world. Yes, yeah, take a trip back to the world before. <laughs> Isn't the world before we would? I live um, in an area, you know, that's kind of like restaurant row of Chicago called the mm. Loop, and so there's a lot of. Um, delightful eateries and I'm a big food person. I wouldn't call me a foodie because I love like I love McDonald's new spicy chicken McNugget. So <laughs> I, I just love food in general, not a foodie, just all food. And so we'd probably be somewhere eating or drinking something together as a family or maybe hmm. going to one of our museums and museum campus, um, something like that or with family. In the world of now, um, we've been doing a lot of picnics, actually, this summer. So there's a couple of really nice parks near us. So we just pack up a bag full of uh, delightful things to consume again and um, head out to a park and enjoy some socially distanced eating. Yeah, I, I enjoy the picnic in these in these days. So I'm going to ask you to get a little bit specific for, you know, for myself when I travel to Chicago and maybe for some people that are listening uh, from that area. So you're going for a picnic. Is there a favorite park that is a good picnic place uh, to to have a picnic at? Well, there's one that's really popular called Skinner Park um, on on the in the West Loop area, but it's always really busy. So one that a lot of folks don't go to is Union Park. So it's at the end of Randolph Street, um, headed towards the United Center where the Bulls play and the Blackhawks. So okay. if you want a quieter park, check out Union. But 
when you come back, um, hopefully the pandemic will be done or slowing down and you want to eat at um, one of our delightful eateries. I actually have a Google Doc and a Google Map of my favorite Chicago restaurants. So you could go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Jenny Loves Food. Jenny with an I-E, so J-E-N-N-I-E, Loves Food. And you can find all my favorite restaurants uh, with a map and a rationale. And they're like categorized by like date night, fun for groups, because, you know, that's how I spend my time is thinking about how to give food recommendations to my friends. I need to check that out. I'm going to put that as a link in the in the description so that people can uh, can take a look at that. So you were about to mention one of your favorite restaurants. I know you have a lot, but you know, let's just think about that day out in Chicago and uh, give me a name of a restaurant you might go to with your family and uh, and the dish that you might eat there. All right. So that's why I made a Google Doc. Matthew, I can't <laughs> pick just one. Everyone keeps asking, right. like, what's the one? Um, I, instead of picking my favorite, I guess I'll just talk about one that I just most recently went to. So it's like a family-owned Italian place called Ricardo Osteria, uh, right under the cracks. My daughter loves it or loved it pre-pandemic because you can see the train go by. Mm. Um, and my favorite dish there is a saffron risotto with these little tiny meatballs. So it's like this really cheesy saffron risotto with these perfectly little um, plump meatballs with a little bit of Parmigiano right on top. It's just, it's my happy, happy place. Glass of wine, just call me a happy, happy lady. That sounds delicious. So I got a little distracted from the picnic, but I am a little bit curious. What What is in the picnic basket when you go picnicking? Oh, gosh. Um, there's some, like, I always want, like, a fresh loaf of bread. So I get big, <laughs> like like crusty bread, um, cheeses, and on us, like a nice ripe avocado, um, because I'm basic and I always like to make avocado toast. Um, let's see. We always have, I love this game. This is the best podcast I've ever been on. They've never talked <laughs> much about my food choices. Why does anyone ever ask me about education or technology? I should just talk about food. Um, like if, you know, I know you're not, I guess I shouldn't say that we bring a bottle of wine. We bring a bottle of water with hey. and we, we water, of course, because we follow all local laws and regulations. Everyone who's listening. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah. And then just like fill in the blank, whatever looks good at mm. the store. Yeah. I like that. I don't oftentimes think about the, uh, the avocado toast as like a staple within the picnic basket. Yeah, that's that's delicious. I need to add that. Yeah, it's so to, uh, you just like get like a nice ripe avocado, a lime, and like your crusty bread, and you can just like spread mm. that bad boy on. It's good to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to ask you about uh, the deep dish pizza. So I'm a big pizza person. I'm maybe not as big of a foodie as, as you, but I but I do like to eat. Um, so when I'm thinking about pizza, you know, personally, I, I like the thinner crust, maybe wood fired. So what's your take on the deep dish pizza? Um, I like, I'm from originally from the East coast. So my mom and my, my mom's family's from New York. So like I, when it comes to pizza, I'm kind of a New York pizza gal. I know I've been in Chicago right. for about 15 years, so it's hard to say that, but I love deep dish pizza. So in my mind, there are two different food categories. Like there's New York style pizza or when I want mm. pizza, I want New York style pizza. But the, sometimes they get cravings for like this, like very doughy, delicious, heavy, dense comfort food thing that is a cousin of pizza. And that's when I go to Chicago deep dish. And sometimes I want deep dish over New York style pizza because deep dish is just going to hit the spot. 
And when you go deep dish, you got to go Lumalati's buttercrust. Don't listen to those people who tell you it's Gino's yeast or anything else or Giordano's. No, 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 no. Lumalati's buttercrust always for the win. It's, it's just like you can't go wrong. Okay. You, you went a little fast there. Is that the name of a restaurant or is that like a, a style or what's oh, going yeah. on? Lumalati's is a chain. It's a Chicago deep dish pizza chain that you can get. And if you don't live in Chicago and you're quarantining and you're in, you know, California or somewhere else and you're like, oh, I, I wish I could go to Chicago, but I can't fly there. Lomalnati's delivers nationwide. So you can get a frozen Lomalnati's deep dish pizza and um, heat it up in your oven and it, it's downright delightful. I send it to my cousin a lot. Oh, oh yeah? Because we're in Philadelphia, so uh, so I guess I could order that and give it a try. It's probably not as good as getting it fresh out, out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's not It's not quite as... Uh, I don't know, actually. I think it's pretty good. I've had I've had the okay. frozen one. It's it's close. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to give that a try. So, so it's interesting. You also <laughs> mentioned that, that you'll go out to uh, McDonald's and get the, the chicken nuggets and, and those are okay for you. <laughs> I just like all food. McDonald's on when, yesterday released their spicy chicken McNuggets, which is like the first time in decades they've, um, they've released a new chicken McNugget flavor. Okay, tell me about it. Oh, it's it's just it's spicy. It's just so good. Um, yeah. And they they it comes with this mighty hot, mighty spicy or mighty hot, mighty spicy sauce or something like that. A new sauce. It's it's quite good. Okay, I haven't been to McDonald's in quite a while, but uh, I might have to check that out. So, Jenny, you are. <laughs> we're gonna transition out of the food. No, <laughs> Jenny, you're the. <laughs> Jenny, you're the global head of education impact at Google. What about that job fits your strengths? Uh, I think that it's just really looking at um, how we're always centering students, educators, and their needs and everything that we do and making sure that um, as, as we're creating solutions and programs to impact education, that we're always thinking about how is how is this what students need? How is this what educators need? And, and if we're not doing that, then how can we um, adjust our tactics and adjust our priorities to make sure we're always aligning with their needs first, which is always Google's intention. It's not new with me coming on board in this role, but I think that um, the reason I was brought on and why I'm really excited to be here is having spent almost two decades in this field and, you know, been a classroom teacher, you know, served at a building leadership level, system, uh, you know, district leader level. So all the different roles that I've had from higher ed to in the classroom, it, it gives me not an ability to speak for all educators everywhere, but it gives me the ability to kind of see when we're not taking into account something that an educator would need and, and to name that and to like bring in more educators into the room to make sure we're getting their insights and, and really designing with them um, at heart and, and their students. Hmm. When you say name that and bring educators into those decisions, uh, what's an example of something you've been able to name and, and bring people in to, to really give some insight into a decision? Um, I can't give specifics right now, but I can say that, you know, at Google, you can imagine we're constantly exploring how we can build new solutions. And in the design and decision-making of like, should we do this or that, or should we build this or that, or what do we do with 
this product or this tool. Um, you know, sometimes there can be, you know, past, past information that's like, Hey, this is, this is what educators need, or this is what students need. And it's always helpful to constantly be aligning with like, how is the education system changing? And it's rapidly shifting in the midst of this global pandemic. So my role um, is a strategy role where I'm constantly questioning like, hey, maybe we should check in again. You know, it's basically um, not assuming anything and constantly checking back with um, educators, students, community members, and ensuring that we really are using the most up-to-date insights to drive the decisions around what we do as a company to serve educators and students. Hmm. When you're when you're saying not assume anything, what what has been helpful for you to do that? I think it's just really maintaining a level of humility and even myself, I could easily get into a pattern of saying, "Oh, well, I've been I taught for a decade and you know, I've been a district administrator and like, I could just like rest on my laurels and say, I got this. I can just, I think I know what a, a mathematics teacher needs because I was a math teacher and that's, that's rather myopic, right? That's just, that's my experience. So instead of assuming that, like taking a step back and saying, how can I be really intentional? Like, how can we, do we need to like do deeper research should we have more conversations? And also, how are we taking everyone into account? So my role as a, the global, like a global role is thinking about how the context of a rural educator in Alabama compares to a rural educator in Illinois, compares to an educator in a big city in Michigan, compares to an educator um, teaching on an island in the Philippines. And looking across all of those very diverse contexts and thinking, how can we design so that everyone feels that this product or this program speaks to them in some way? And obviously, we're not always going to get it 100% right, but we want to do a good job of not assuming anything and being mindful that there are diverse experiences across the globe and and acknowledging and, and celebrating that in the way that we design. How do you how do you include those diverse experiences? So it's really thinking about the user needs. So it's thinking about are, is is a are the educators and students experiencing the use of technology through a phone only, and they don't have Chromebooks or laptops? Um, is there a are we being um, culturally responsive and thinking about? the context of like the family life and how students are experiencing technology. Is there, um, you know, is there a, a need for us to think about accessibility? Are students um, who are deaf or hard of hearing able to um, access this tool as well as students who don't have um those accessibility needs, low, low vision or no vision. Mm. So these are things that we're constantly exploring. I actually was on a call the other day where we were talking about working with educators in, um, in Middle Eastern countries. And uh, as we explored the interface of some of our tools in Arabic and the text goes in an opposite direction than English language, yeah. we wanted to be mindful of, of that user experience too. So just trying to to really again be have deep humility in saying we're not assuming anything. We want to look holistically at at the, at everyone and knowing that 
you know, we're not going to be able to meet every single need, but we're going to be informed with how we make decisions and do our best. Great. I want to shift and talk about your book a bit. Courageous Adventures, Navigating Obstacles to Discover Classroom Innovation. Can you start off by telling me a bit maybe about your story, your courageous adventure to innovate? What got your adventure going? What lit that fire? I was struggling. So I won a one-to-one grant to have devices in my classroom. I had no idea what I was doing. And I spent maybe three months like very stressed and very tearful and going home and having a tall glass of, of water every evening <laughs> and, and just feeling deep frustration and anxiety and failure. And this was back in um, the early days, pre like, you know, Chromebook this, iPad that, all the ed tech kind of surge in the recent, you know, decade, decade and a half. And when I would go on and Google, like, how do I use this device one-to-one in my classroom? There were very few articles or blogs or anything out there because at that point, when I went one-to-one, the device had just been released to the world. So no one had ever seen it before. And I, I realized that my struggle was both um, a skill set struggle, but also a mindset struggle. So it wasn't just that I didn't know how to use the device, but pedagogically, philosophically, I was so locked into the way that I had learned as a young person and the first, you know, many years in the classroom pre-technology that I had to really break free of that fixed mindset of this is what teaching and learning looks like and really own that growth mindset of I can change and I can adapt and it is possible for me to be different and to try something different and that doesn't make it wrong. Um, And so the book was really inspired in helping educators hopefully skip a lot of that anxiety and frustration and feel like there was a support in, um, in moving towards that growth mindset in understanding that it's okay to be iterative and to not be perfect and to have kind of a text-based best friends in, in this journey or this adventure, if you will, um, in trying something new. So it sounds like there's this two these two prongs. You have the mindset and the skill set. What helped you change your mindset? Uh, I think it was just realizing that what I held to be um, carved in stone about school that you know the way the the barriers that I saw as immovable objects were no longer necessarily the case because I had this powerful new set of tools in front of me. So for example, the year I went one-to-one, I think I had close to 40 students in in one of my classes. I taught mathematics in the middle grades and I, I had like 37 students, something like that. And I had about 45 minutes to teach these 37 students and they were split grade. So I had fourth graders and fifth graders in one classroom a little under 40 students to teach two grade levels of standards in 45 minutes. Hmm. And so, you know, it was our, that was a pretty big, pretty big uh, challenge to overcome. And time was a fixed commodity for me. I had 45 minutes. So how was I going to teach all these students in 45 minutes? And there was one of me, right? I didn't have a teacher's assistant or a co-teacher. It was just me and, and my, and my young people, my young mathematicians. So 
when I brought devices into my classroom, I realized all of a sudden that I could clone myself. I could record short videos of myself teaching, upload it to Google Drive, and create essentially individualized playlists of me. And this was pre-Khan Academy, pre-any of that. Yeah. Um, and and have my students access these videos on their own and, and differentiate. And so I would spend evenings instead of making worksheets, like creating personalized videos, math videos for my students saying like, Hey, so-and-so like notice yesterday, still struggling with common denominators. Let's try this again. And so I was able to take that 45 minutes and clone myself and, and create individualized learning experience for each of my students. So like that mindset of, I have 45 minutes, I have 37 students, I have two grade levels and there's one me and I have, these are the, these are the fixed, the fixed uh, components or features of my classroom. I realized all of a sudden, wait, there could be more than one me. Ah, growing that mindset. Ah, the 45 minutes isn't the same 45 minutes for every child. Ah, growing that mindset. Oh, I can Mm. be different. I can change the way I use my after school time. Ah, growing in that mindset. And how did that change or how do you think that changed the learning experience for your for your students for your little mathematicians i like the way you phrase that i think that for them i think in twofold i think there was like the tangible uh fact that my students had much quicker assessment loops so using google forms and real-time feedback Normally, they would take an like a formative assessment, an exit ticket, or a quiz in my classroom. I'd take home, you know, my my sack of assessments. Like I said, I had thirty seven kids, but that was one period of students. So I would take, you know, a hundred something assessments home every day. And given my energy level at the end of the day, on my best days, where I was the best version of myself, I'd grade them all and get them back to the students the next day. But for all the educators who are listening, you know days where you don't get it back the very next day maybe it takes another day or two right and you know ideally next day but little stuff happens um and so sometimes my students would be waiting 24 48 hours or more to to get feedback on on that assessment and the problem was is that if you're that young person you're no longer in that moment of cognitive dissonance if i'm sitting there taking a math assessment and i'm struggling and confused waiting a day or two days and I look at it again, I I have to get back in that mindset. Like I don't even remember taking this assessment and, and what was I thinking at that time? And why are these red marks on my paper? Whereas with, you know, me adopting these new tools, you know, they would take a Google forms assessment and immediately get an email or a message showing like what they got right or wrong. And so in that moment of cognitive dissonance, they were getting real time feedback. Same thing with differentiation you know, they were having much more differentiated experiences throughout the day. So I would pull small groups of students to have 3D one-on-one or small group interaction with them. But then the rest of my class wasn't doing the same thing. They were getting digital video versions of myself doing real-time assessment. And then I'd pull them to debrief that. So it was kind of in-flipping. A lot of folks, instead of calling it flipped classroom, they call it in-flipping, flipping within your classroom. Hmm. So that was a tangibly different experience. But then even aside from that, there's like that social emotional experience too of, I was so stoked to be trying something new. It was exciting for me at that point in my career. It was kind of like business as usual, where I was teaching the same M&M statistic lesson every single year until the year that there was a peanut allergy warning. So I had to move from M&Ms to raisins. 
that was like the big change up for that year. Like, oh, <laughs> this year we're doing raisin statistics instead of M&M statistics. Um, and, and for me, like bringing in this, this technology and trying something new was like a breath of fresh air where I felt so powerful and I was so excited by these opportunities. And I think that my student, I don't think I know my students internalized that change in energy from me and they could feel how excited I was to try something new. Um, and so I think that they were in turn really excited to come to my classroom and see, you know, what new uh, adventures I was planning for them each day. Yeah, that's interesting that they're able to pick up on that. And and I think that is uh, very true and, and powerful. You're walking into a school that is an innovative school. What would you hope that that school would look like, maybe in a classroom or the overall feel of the school? So many things. Um, <laughs> I think like the default that a lot of, um, of folks in this field say is it's student-centered, right? You have that like healthy buzz of creative chaos in the air. Um, you know, kids are up and about moving. It's clear like they're driving um, the, the learning ship, if you will, and that you know, you you hear folks say like the um, definition of a good classroom is like you're not really sure where the teacher is. You have to like kind of where's Waldo find uh, the adult in the room because they're somewhere with a small group or sitting in a carpet or off in a corner building something with a student. Um, so like there there's that, but I think in, in, even more it's just like the sense of risk risk taking and and the energy in in the adults too, and that they're they feel like really alive in the space as professionals and they're creating something new every day. And I think that also helps educators from feeling um, stuck sometimes. And I, and I definitely felt that in my classroom, that at times it's like, am I growing? Am I doing something different? And I think what part of the beauty of this is embracing the innovative spirit is yes, solving old problems with new solutions, but also helping, um, practitioners uh, stay fresh and stay excited about their craft. Yeah, that risk-taking is, is really interesting. I haven't heard a lot of people mention that as an important component, but as you're, as you're talking about it and, and describing it, it's exciting to envision that and to be a part of that as an, as an educator. What do you think are some things that foster uh, risk-taking within educators? Honestly, I, I think it's ultimately, if you want to really see risk-taking happening beyond silos here and there, it, it's a cultural thing within mm. within any given building. And I think it's it's coming from both sides, from the leadership in fostering a space where trying something new and not getting it right is okay. Um, you hear folks using phrases like failing forward and iterative cycles. Um, but I think leaders modeling it too and saying like, Hey, we're going to try this out and it's not going to work. And, and naming when they get things wrong and saying like, Hey, mm. I messed that up. <laughs> Sorry, let's try it again. And, and owning that and, and debriefing it with their teams. I think from a teacher level to modeling it in, in, you know, really highlighting and, and celebrating the um, organic spaces where risk-taking is happening and seeing where the bright spots are. So in any given organization, you have risk takers. It's just the name of the game. Everett Rogers was a sociologist in the 1960s who you know, created a theory called the diffusion of innovation. And it's a bell curve that shows that you know, about 14 or 16% of any given population are going to be 
um, you know, early adopters, innovators, those risk takers. And so they're, they're going to show up in every organization. And so I think really finding them and amplifying that and saying like, this is great is another way to create that culture of finding it organically and saying, Hey, we see Matthew made a podcast and that's amazing. And we should all celebrate that. And Matthew, like, how did you find time in your day to podcast amongst everything else and tell us more and, and just publicly sharing those risk takers and, and helping not just their risk takers and they're unique, but making the risk takers seem fallible and human because the other thing that could happen is everyone says, Oh, well, that's Matthew. He's an innovator. I don't have time for that. Not like that Matthew guy. And you know, Matthew, you sharing like, no, the first 10 times I did a podcast, it was a hot mess. I tried to say goodbye and my guest talked over me and <laughs> the recording. And there was a lot of like inappropriate language used or, you know, I, I uploaded it to the wrong channel. So new naming where it was messy and frustrating mm. is really important because then it humanizes the innovative risk-taking experience and makes it more accessible for your colleagues who might not have the courage to dive in as quickly as you did. Yeah, I, I thought I edited out all that bad language. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you, the, you know, naming that. Like, and then I had to stay up all night and edit it all out. That's really interesting. So the idea of of modeling it as the, as the leaders, but then celebrating, displaying, you know, but then also having these real conversations about what it looks like so that other people can join in. Um, I did have a question about that bell curve. Within that bell curve, there's about 14% of people are going to be innovators, right? Now, how do we increase that within schools? Because part of me was thinking, well, okay, well, we're just going to have 14% within schools, no matter what we do. So how would we increase that thinking about that theory? Uh, there's a couple different theories around that. Jeffrey Moore um, was uh, a marketing guy who, you know, a few decades after Everett Rogers came in and he said, okay, there's this thing called the chasm. So between that like upward, like 15, 14, 16% of folks, you have this chasm, which then um, breaks them from what he called, what uh, Everett Rogers called the early majority or like, which was like, you know, about 30 some percent of folks. Um, but and that's that's a hard chasm to bridge. So his Jeffrey Moore's theory was like, if you really focus on the innovators and early adopters, they're eventually going to pull people across the cap that the, the, uh, the chasm. The challenge with that is in Jeffrey Moore's model, it, it might take some time to pull folks across. And if you think about time, you know, in terms of sales and marketing, like, sure, fine, like sales for a couple years aren't where we want it to be. But like, eventually, we get folks to like, see why this innovative new tool is is incredible and, and they'll follow along. And time in terms of a student's life cycle is is a lot less uh, of something that a commodity that we just want to take for granted. So like a year or two years in an elementary student's life is is quite impactful. And we don't want to wait a year or two years for a, an educator to kind of jump that chasm. So what some of the work we've been doing at Google is looking at coaching um, and, and Joyce and showers had this uh, research that came out a few years ago that said the most impactful way to sustain long-term internalized and actualized growth by teachers and educators is coaching. And what I mean by that is you could do like a PD in service training, even for like a day or a week, 
But then like, if you want to see sustained change in practice, that, that, that may or may not be effective. But if you have an ongoing coaching relationship with those same educators, that's going to be way more impactful than like any, any length training. So we developed something called the Google for Education Certified Coach Program. And the goal of that program is to upskill coaches or teacher leaders to have coaching skills to um, uplift their colleagues and provide that coaching support. And the goal of that is to get 100% of that bell curve moving forward on the innovation scale. So, you know, the other folks who aren't in that top 14, 16% can still make forward progress. And, you know, we, we partnered with Digital Promise to do a pilot of this for three years and found really exciting data that it works. Um, and so, yeah, you could, you could just Google, Google Certified Coach Program or Google for Education Certified Coach, and it's a free program that anyone can jump into. That's great. It just launched recently, right, Jenny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just this past summer. And it's based on my book. So um, it was, it's kind of, there's a time, I wasn't expecting to talk about Certified Coach, but there is that tie-in of uh, my book was kind of a, a starting point for building off that coaching model. Thinking about the coach, the coaching model, do they have innovation? As, as you're talking, I'm sort of picturing the end goal or the target that they're shooting at. Is it clear to say, or is it true to say that innovation will be that end goal or that target that the coach is trying to work with the teacher to achieve? I, I think yes, but I think we want to be cautious about using innovation, you know, um, without specificity or being clear mm. what we mean. I think oftentimes in education terms are bandied around without clarity. And then when you say innovation, you're meaning something different than when I say it, or, or neither of us really mean anything. So the point of the certified coach program is really looking at teacher practice and saying, when you're introducing a new variable, like an innovative new tool to your practice, how do we look at longstanding um, uh, critical challenges, problems of practice, and and then reevaluate the strategies with which we're using to address those challenges? So for example, hmm. take my previous note of, I have too many students and too little time. I'm trying to teach math, right? That, that predates tech. That's just a problem that many educators have worldwide and probably have always had. One-room schoolhouse, hey, those teachers had too many students and too little time, right? So then now we're introducing technology, you know, G Suite tools, Google Classroom, YouTube, all these really powerful tools. Rather than saying, use Google Classroom because it's new, instead say, you have too many students, you have too little time. How might we address that, that challenge with this new tool and create a strategy that incorporates access to tools that we didn't have before? And the coach helps couch use of innovation and use of innovative tools in the existing problems educators have, thereby deepening uh, buy-in and making sure, again, like we started this conversation, you know, my role is about centering the work that we do on student and educator needs, centering that growth on educator and student needs. I want to shift a little bit and get your thoughts on the shift to remote learning. What are some innovations that you've witnessed and are encouraged by within this remote learning switch? Something that you look at and you're like, that's great. That's wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. I think the first thing is uh, kind of calling back to our previous conversation about, you know, Everett Rogers curve and willingness to take risks is how many teachers have become 
overnight risk takers because they had to, right? So I have some friends and colleagues who used to joke with me like, Jenny, I know you're a techie person, but Mm -hmm. don't talk about it at our dinner party or don't talk about it when we get together because I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. And then, you know, overnight, I see on social media that they're doing incredibly powerful things with tech hmm. in, in mere weeks. And the way that educators have risen to the occasion, I can't, I don't think it can be celebrated enough. You know, I will shout from every rooftop all day long, just how incredibly flexible and resilient educators are in, in, in rising to the occasion and trying new things for this uh, pandemic. And so... I think that's huge. And I hope that post pandemic, we can maintain this culture of risk taking and trying things new. Um, It doesn't just feel like triage. I did want to get your perspective on the other end of the spectrum. Now, I'm not trying to dime anyone out here, but what do you think are some examples or maybe one example um, that maybe people are well-intentioned, but they're missing the mark to innovate in respect to remote learning? So they're doing something uh, and they're trying to do something that would be innovative, but it's it's really not. It might be missing the mark. Have you seen any of those sorts of experiences? Yeah, I think there are two things. Uh, one is just trying to replicate in-school experiences mm-hmm. digitally and saying, this is exactly how I used to do it in my classroom. So I'm going to make it the exact same, but with tech, which is an issue whenever you introduce tech. You're just trying to um, substitute, which, you know, Dr. Ruben Puentadera has the SAMR model and, you know, at the lowest level of the SAMR model is substitution. So we don't want to do that. Um, we want to take this as an opportunity, uh, to be more flexible and say, Hey, you know, we have more flexibility of time and space. And so how might we rethink the things that again, we held to be true in face-to-face learning that no longer needs to be true. The second thing is, and I think it's related, is really trying to think about the things that we really enforced in our classrooms that were more about compliance than students being successful, and then maintaining those compliance norms in an, in a remote space without being culturally aware or responsive to the needs of our students in this setting. So what I mean by that is understanding, you know, saying like everyone has to be in uniform and sitting at a desk and being in front of a screen for, you know, six hours a day. And and there's one element of that, of like thinking about purely like the social emotional needs of students and like mm-hmm. thinking like, what is it like, how emotional, how emotionally trying is it to like be so apart and not, and not be seen and, and just have to sit there and like the physical needs of students but also the cultural needs of students in terms of, you know, I might not be in a space where I can sit in front of a computer and I might not be in a space where I can have my uniform or my clothes clean in that space because my parents are working, you know, back-to-back shifts trying to make up for, um, you know, another family member who was laid off in the pandemic or my parents took on a new job where they're working, um, you know, night shifts or gone all day. So I am, you know, a grade four student who's also a caregiver to my younger siblings. And, you know, that was me growing up. I, my parents both worked and I was nine years old taking care of my little sister. And so if someone said to me, like, you have to be in front of a device all the time learning, I'd be like, well, I'm also taking care of my my, you know, five-year-old sister. How am I supposed to do that? Because I need to make sure she's not you know, uh, 
e- you know, eating marbles or something. So, <laughs> eating marbles. Exactly, you know, and, which is something she did. So <laughs> I just think, you know, we as educators are constantly trying to be mindful of how we're educating the whole child. And I think educators are generally really amazing at that. And We just had a great education on air event with system leaders uh, through Google yesterday. And something I heard one of our superintendents say is we're spinning so many more plates and we're dealing with so many more challenges, you know, balls are going to drop, but we want to make sure that the balls that we drop aren't the critical ones that, you know, sustain what our students really need to be, to be healthy, happy human beings. Yeah. And so I, I, I just like, you know, would, I don't think I'm saying anything new that any educator hasn't thought of. It's just maybe a reminder. Yeah. And I think they're really important reminders, you know, as, as we're moving on, um, I really appreciate you pointing out those things that we can, uh, you know, we can grasp onto and think, okay, these are important, you know, let's do these, let's focus on these ideas as, as we're moving forward for however long this is going to take. And then when we go into the classroom, maybe we have grown as an educator and we can do things uh, differently when we get back into a physical space. Um, Jenny, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation. I really appreciate the way that you have helped us think deeper and better about innovation, how it applies to education. And as we get to the end here, uh, who do you want to give a shout out to? My little sister, uh, the marble eater. Uh, (laughs) You can find her. She's actually a young adult author and she has two books that are out um, with, with Penguin, Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits. Her new one just came out and uh, she recently has been like a huge support for me um, during mm. the pandemic and just helping me um, create work-life balance and, and feel supported. So she's at at Kat Cho, K-A-T-C-H-O on Twitter. And, you know, shout out Kat, love you. And, and thanks for being the best marble eating sister in the whole wide world. It is time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? Gratitude to all of the educators out there who are going above and beyond for your students and your communities. And I'll say the world, thank you so much. You're burning the candle at both ends and your efforts are not going unnoticed, at least by me and all of my colleagues at Google. So thank you so much. Jenny, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time sharing your experiences and helping us think deeper about these important issues. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. 